Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and also to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then by all means, please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. And who knows, maybe you'll be the next one to join us on the programme. I am delighted to say that joining us on the show today on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital is Anita Grant. Anita is the Chief Executive of Islington Play Association, a non-profit organisation that has been working to improve children's lives and life chances. She's also the Chair of Play England. Um, Anita, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you so much for joining us on the programme. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, it's great to be here. Warm and sunny here in Brighton as well. Fantastic to hear as well. A lovely day for it always sort of makes the morale high, doesn't it? Um, I think um, not to dampen the mood, we should probably start by sort of addressing the elephant in the room here, Anita. And that's the fact that as we record this podcast in August 2021, we are still somewhat within the grip of the global COVID-19 situation and feeling the effects of that, even though social restrictions in England have been lifted entirely almost for the time being. So just sort of looking back to sort of March 2020 when really all of this started to affect our daily lives. Um, how has it affected you and affected your organisation, would you say? Well, it's had a massive in, um, impact on our organisation because we deliver services directly to children mm. um, in a nursery and also in adventure playgrounds, which are free to access open play spaces with qualified play workers there. Um, so from the beginning, uh, we had to really review and revise what we were doing. And the nursery stayed open throughout the entirety of the pandemic for key workers um, and vulnerable children at some points. And as soon as we could open more widely, uh, which seemed to be day by day decisions, we did. And the adventure playgrounds, we switched to an open playground model rather than a, an out-of-school activity model, which meant that we could allow a lot of children to be able to use the space, but we had to change our mode of delivery. Mm. So um, I think there was a lot of decision-making done very quickly. Um, I've got an amazing staff team, which meant that we everybody was very fle- flexible. Um, and uh, we continued to see children throughout but the effect on children is uh, immense, and I don't think any of us really understand what has happened to them yet. Yeah, it's certainly something that I think will become more obvious in the months to come, isn't it? Because they've had to show an extreme amount of resilience to be able to adapt to these changing circumstances. And that also goes for staff members within your sector as well, because I can imagine that having to continue to come into work and operate under sort of changing measures and restrictions that does sort of take its toll on the anxiety and sort of the mental health of individuals, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think different people um, manage that very differently. Mm. We did have some staff who got furloughed at some point, um, but I don't, I don't think that was actually easier than the staff that had to work through. I think the experiences were just different and people have really had to think about you know, their own resilience and how they're going to manage their, themselves and their families through this time. Um, the impact on children is, um, you know, we won't know. They've been so restricted and observed and controlled and they've accepted that situation so far. 
I think we'll need to wait and see what impact that's had on their development and their social skills, their relationships with each other and their relationships with the natural world. And uh, grown-ups need to start thinking about how we're going to facilitate that recovery. And it's likely to be a longer-term fix, isn't it, rather than a short-term one. We're hearing a lot of talk about it within schools, of course, because rightfully they're missing out on sort of full-time education there. But it starts in the early years, doesn't it? I mean, development being hampered at this early stage, that is still going to have an impact. So it's across the board that really this whole issue does need to be addressed, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think what we'll find is that this generation of children and young people think and act very differently to those that have gone before, including ourselves. Mm. And we need to be able to find the bravery in the space and the strength to allow them to work out for themselves how they're going to manage in the world moving forward, having missed out on vital experiences or experiences we thought were vital when we had them um, and development stages because the things are just fundamentally very different for this next generation now. It is exactly. And something that they're certainly going to be growing up with much more emphasis on as well is the importance of environment, isn't it? I mean, we've seen, of course, that IPCC climate change report coming out and we've heard a lot of sort of some of the inadvertent benefits that have come out of lockdown, such as the fact that we're going outside more, there were less cars on the road. It sort of brought carbon emissions down, that sort of thing. And that's another thing that's really going to be drilled into them as we look to sort of build back better, isn't it? Um, which the government is really sort of pushing from, from this pandemic. Yeah, I think, it, you know, the, the rhetoric is problematic for young people and children, mm. I think, because it's a very fearful, um, anxious way of describing the world that they're coming back out to. And mm. whilst I recognise that perhaps grown-ups and business leaders need a bit of a shock to um, really understand about climate change. Children don't. But the problem is we can't talk about these things without the children hearing. So I think, again, the impact on children of hearing this message of doom and disaster and and the uh, description of what the world will be like by the time they hit 40 is not going to add to their good mood and hope for the future. So we do, those of us that work directly with children, need to really think about that and think about how to encourage them to still be positive and, and hopeful and ambitious for the future mm. whilst the uh, discussion is so dark and difficult. I think that is very right because I think over the course of this last year with COVID and with, of course, the whole climate change rhetoric, I think there is a lot of fatalism there, isn't there? And being exposed to that, of course, can be quite damaging. So something certainly to think about going forward. Um, going back to something we just mentioned slightly earlier as well about the fact that you did use the uh, the government's furlough scheme. Um Elsewhere within the education sector, I suppose the timeliness of certain pieces of guidance is something that's come under a lot of criticism during the pandemic. Teachers were often left with maybe a weekend to prepare certain things, for instance. With yourselves, have you found that sort of the timeliness and indeed the clarity of certain guidelines for operation, have they sort of been sufficient for you or has it been a little bit of you've had to fend for yourselves at times? Oh, yeah, it's absolutely true that guidance and, and even regulations were changing day by day. And it was a, an additional piece of work to try and analyze that information as it came out. There wasn't enough time to be able to fully think through the implications of the changes that we were needing to make. And we were all you know, on the run, weren't we, trying to, to move really mm. fast. I think we were lucky um, um, in my involvement in Play England, I was lucky I'd had a number of conversations directly with DfE officials at different points during the pandemic. And the observation I'd make about that was that the, 
the the um, ideas behind the guidance, the way that it was written, and the the way that officials thought it would be rolled out, were not didn't always happen because different local authorities um, would interpret that information in different ways. Different areas were in very different spaces from other areas or different places or different numbers of, of COVID. So whilst the guidance itself was well thought through, I think, and could even have been clear, I guess, it was impossible for people to see it in that way because they were all in crisis themselves and seeing it through the filter of wherever they were. Absolutely right. And I think it sort of was frustrating from a leadership point of view within the sector, wasn't it? Because we're probably so used to a more sort of proactive form of leading our organisations and to be sort of left with no choice but to wait for guidelines, wait for us to sort of discover more about the virus and almost be reactive instead. It's it's difficult, isn't it, when you can't sort of plan ahead too far, I suppose. Yeah. And I think, you know, additionally, we commissioned some work to look at the for example, the, the real levels of risk to children from the virus itself quite early on. And that was very clearly saying that the, the risk to children was very low. But even though we had that information and were sharing it, we still had to be part of a world which shut down the, the lives of children. Mm. And, it, you know, that was that's very difficult to hold those two things at the same time. Children themselves were not at risk. But the grown-ups were at risk. It was the children, I think, that were most impacted by the restrictions and closures that we had. Mm, I would agree with that. Certainly, it is children, it is young people that have really had to put their lives on hold during this time. Absolutely right. And um, even though it has been quite a harrowing period of time, sort of getting through this 16 months up to this point, um, if you sort of look back over the pandemic at large, would you say that maybe this experience that you've had of crisis management, if we call it that, do you think you've taken any sort of positive lessons away from this at all? Uh, interesting. I don't know whether I'm far enough away from it yet, Scott, to see the positive outcomes mm-hmm. of it. But I guess I, I guess a few observations would be that um, very di- people have responded very differently um, in, relation, in terms of staff or even parents that we've come in contact with. And it's not necessarily the people that you thought would be able to cope that have coped. Um, or the people that you thought wouldn't be able to cope who haven't been able to cope. And I think in terms of individuals, we've all had to really take a big look at ourselves and see what sort of things we find really difficult to manage and look at our lives and wonder whether we were doing everything in the way that we would want to do it going forward. And I think that will have a big impact on everybody's decisions going forward. I think in relation to being a leader, my, I, I actually was stuck in Brighton for a lot of the time because mm. I work in Islington and wasn't commuting to London uh, for, throughout the uh, the core lockdowns. So that did mean I had to change my leadership style and think a lot about communication because as a person, personally, I'm very um, communicative in a room. I look in people's eyes. I read body language. I respond directly to what's happening in the space. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, but doing that on Zoom Mm. did not work as well as I was used to it working. So there were quite a few changes I had to make in my management style as well as everything else. Yes, it is. And it's certainly a little bit harder from sort of a wellbeing point of view, isn't it? When you're sort of 
looking at leading people from afar and maybe you can't quite tell over a Zoom or a Teams call that maybe something's not quite right with somebody compared to maybe when you're in a room with them, for example. So it takes a lot more observation, a real change in leadership style. I think that's very, very true. Um, and relating to technology as well, um, we've seen a real sort of digital divide over the course of the last 16 months, haven't we? Um, and that's one of those sort of deep-seated inequalities in society, if we call it that, that's really been exposed and sort of laid large during the pandemic. And if this rhetoric of technology is going to play much more of a role in our day-to-day lives does indeed come to pass, then that's also something that we're going to have to really look at as a nation, isn't it, as well? Absolutely. And I think, you know, very obviously that's shown in in terms of children and their ability to do their schooling Mm. in a very basic way. It's obvious. If there's one phone in the family or one computer in the family, you've got two, two siblings. You're already at a disadvantage straight away before anything has even come over on that screen. So I think, yeah, those those practical issues are, are massive and real. And I think the other interesting thing for us in the Play Association has been we have always advocated for time off the screen. The idea that children develop by engaging in the natural world and with each other and learning about their physicality and who they are within the environment that they find themselves in. And we've always we, we've never had screens, for example, on the adventure playgrounds because the idea is that children are there being in the present and being there. But this whole period has meant that all children have been on the screen, in fact, encouraged to be on the screen, in fact, in trouble if they're not on the screen because that's how they were at school. So that that's a massive shift as well that we need to wait and see what the impact is going to be because we're already seeing that a whole range of young people who you would expect to be keen to be out and about with their friends or going for walks or in the parks or in the streets are now not willing to do that, partly Mm. because they're not used to doing it, partly because they were told they weren't allowed to do it for a year, and partly because grown-ups aren't responding that uh, favorably to seeing groups of children being together still. I think even though the restrictions are relaxed now, Mm. many grown-ups are still quite anxious about seeing groups of children and young people, whereas actually they should be celebrating that because that's how the children and young people are going to re-engage with the world around them and their peers. Mm, that's absolutely right and we're in a little bit of an uncertain period still aren't we because even though restrictions are gone for the time being we don't know whether sort of the trajectory of the pandemic is going to be sort of going up again towards the autumn and towards the winter there's already sort of warnings of maybe sort of a re-emergence of certain respiratory viruses during the winter months so it's something to keep an eye on we don't know whether we're really out and clear from it yet and there's still a lot that's going to be changing particularly in the landscape of younger education early years childcare. Um, but in an ideal world um, if we were to sort of look ahead maybe to this time next year Anita um, what ideally are you hoping for yourselves at the Islington Play Association and also Play England to have really looked at and achieved by this time in 2022 would you say? Well, I think the one big opportunity we have now is to really recognise the power of play the power of free play, which is where children are given space and time to experience the world on their own terms and in their own ways, not directed to learn specific outcomes, not directed or restricted or controlled in terms of their behaviour, but actually get some space and time in nature and with each other. Because the human brain is an amazing organism, which, you know, and humans have a very strong fight to survive mm. um, inside us all. So my my understanding and belief is that we should allow that space, that rewilding almost 
I was listening on Radio 4 today to somebody talking about rewilding and the fact that planting loads of trees that we choose in the places we choose isn't possibly necessarily the best way forward for uh, climate change. And I think the same thing is of children. Children's brains will adapt and they are amazing creatures, but they will need the space and time to be able to do that. And if we can use this sort of reset recovery period to think about play and making much more space for that, that will be a really, really positive outcome. Exactly. And for now, we're just sort of waiting to see whether that indeed does come to pass. Um, we are just about out of time on the programme uh, today, Anita, but since we have acknowledged the fact that we are sort of still in that sort of period of limbo, if you like, I actually think it would be fantastic once a little bit more time has passed, maybe sort of eight to nine months, it would be fantastic to actually welcome you back onto the programme just to catch up on goings on in the sector and just see exactly what we have really taken away from this, because I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on the programme with us today. It's been really insightful and I'm sure that our listeners certainly share that sentiment as well. Oh well thank you yeah and I would love to come back and tell you where we've got to in eight to nine months. Yes hopefully there'll be some positive news to share on that front as well but just before we do wrap up by all means please do continue to take care and stay safe with all that's still going on because we're not quite clear yet but I'm confident that hopefully better days are ahead of us fingers crossed. I hope so Scott yes thank you. It was a pleasure welcoming Anita Grant, Chief Executive of Islington Play Association and Chair of Play England onto today's programme. Uh, coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Law Blunkett, who will be sharing his take on the events of the COVID-19 pandemic and his hopes for this period of economic recovery, hopefully, now that social restrictions have been lifted in England. That will be coming up on the show shortly. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about 
more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside 
the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed 
further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also 
that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.